Funky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. We're back. Wow, it's been so long since the last episode, I can't even really remember what happened in between. Oh, yeah. So I know a story is in order, and this is completely off the cuff, and as I remember. We were about to roll into episode 11 of this here season two to talk about Terrapin, and um, when I say about to, I mean I had scheduled the recording uh and then pandemic happened um i think everybody who came out the other side of the shit show year that was 2020 has their own story to tell has their own experience uh, but for me it was batten down the hatches you know i really wanted to make sure that uh, i could focus on our family and prepare for what i understood even at that time like february 2020 was going to be a long haul And I wish I had been wrong because I know a lot of people endured a lot worse stuff uh, than I did. And if any of you listening suffered in 2020, you have my deepest sympathies. It was a really tough year for a lot of folks. Uh, I know that music got a lot of people through, and that was the case for me as well. So I'm glad to be back and talking about it with all you guys. Looking back, I really wouldn't trade anything. It was an opportunity uh, to really reflect and to deal with these kinds of dire situations as they arose. It's like a hardcore Jedi training year. Necessary, though. Everybody's juggling a shit ton of stuff. I know I was, kind of still am. Um, I was trying to finish a book on music copyright for a deadline um, while working my full-time day job and you know the kids at home um it was the best situation that i can possibly imagine it was beautiful i loved it i truly truly loved it um i'm grateful for it but i didn't have time to do this podcast oh and we moved across the country yep back in june 2020 we relocated from washington dc to vancouver washington just across the river from the former anarchist jurisdiction of portland oregon and we absolutely love it out here but i think in retrospect it was smart to give ourselves some space to breathe during that transition I also wanted to take a second to fill you in on where I think the show might be heading. We'll finish out this season talking about the rest of the Dead studio records, and we'll have some special guests here and there as they come out of the woodwork. Season three might go in a totally different direction. I will fill you in on that once it's more clear in my own mind. I also wanted to thank everyone for all the letters and notes that we've been getting during the hiatus. It really means a lot. I really appreciate it that you've been listening and uh, also your patience. Um, One thing that uh, seems to get asked a lot in the letters is about the intro music to the show. Um, People kept writing to me about it. So I was like, shit, I got to record a middle section to justify its existence as a track. And that expectedly took me forever to get to, but it's done. And you can get it at deadtomepod.bandcamp.com for free. You can download it for free, or you can drop a coin in the bucket. Your choice will put the link in the show notes. 
And while I was finishing that track out, I was like, man, we should just do a Dead to Me soundtrack. So we are going to. I'll be working with our good friend Kevin, who's a dope musician himself, and we'll stitch something together somehow. It'll probably include some interstitial bits that we've already used in prior episodes. Uh, Some of it will be newly composed as a standalone soundtrack experience. So if you like stuff like music (laughs) or the intro to Dead to Me, stick around because we've got more flavors to come. And what's immediately to come is our discussion of Terrapin Station with special guest Rusty Sutton, a manager and head of marketing at The Glow Management. And of course, the usual gang of idiots, myself, Eduardo and Kevin. So let's do this. So for our first episode back after a dead-sized hiatus, we have special guest Rusty Sutton, who's a manager and head of marketing at The Glow Management. They rep acts like Sylvan Esso, Y Oak, Daughter of Swords, and others. So Rusty, since I'm a late onset deadhead, I'm always curious about other people's trajectory here. Uh, If you don't mind, how did you get on the bus? Sure. I'm originally from Asheville, North Carolina. Beautiful. Which I think has for a long time had a pretty burgeoning, like Grateful Dead, post-Grateful Dead community. Um, So when I was a kid, my parents weren't really into the dead. They were more like bikers. So they were more into like Little Feet and Marshall Tucker Band. But Wait, so your parents were Kevin? (laughs) <laughs> Kevin and I have had many conversations about yes, this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of overlap, a lot of overlap between yeah. our musical heritages. Oh yeah, but uh, but no, actually. So when I was in high school, all of my friends were really into the Dead because their parents. I mean, like I have friends whose parents like followed the Dead for years up through having children yeah. on tour. We're like taking babies to the lot. Hardcore family. That kind of commitment, and then yeah, I don't know. Some reason, like when I was in high school, I just was like really. I think like reactionary to that. Like, yeah. Oh, like that's, yeah. that's the old music. Like I, I, don't, I don't mess with it. I was like a punk. I hear that. You know? Yeah, totally. But I was probably 15 or 16. I had a, a band teacher who, uh, after our last concert of the season, it was just bedlam. Like band class became an opportunity to study for finals. You had mm-hmm. like doing all the things like, you know, just goofing off, like blowing <laughs> off steam. Yeah. And he would always play music during those classes. Like you just throw a record on and, and the reason that I poked my head up and was like, I want to be on this episode is because my entrance record was Terrapin. Yeah. He played Terrapin one day during one of those one of those what? classes. And I just was like, I don't know why. Like my ears turned to it in a way where I was yeah. like, oh, I get this. Like I get this in a way that I never got truck in. I never got Casey Jones, right. all the other stuff that I've been exposed oh, to from like kind of like iconic era dead like. Terrapin just did it for me and I was like a gateway but I was still very much like I'm a punk I'm a a North Carolina indie rocker like this was the late 90s I was like this is not my scene Mm -hmm. so I like quietly secretly listened to Terrapin and (laughs) and Shakedown Street a little bit like those two records were pretty much the only thing only dead that I really listened to for yeah. like 10 years <laughs> it's like social contraband yeah no totally like i was like i was like in my room playing goldeneye by myself like terrapin station you know just rocking just riding out the end of the cold war yeah first of all rusty are we related <laughs> possible man you pick up on the, like the worst like thing to get into a band on yeah. and that's just where it goes it's no division though <laughs> yeah. one of my really big like questions about this was like who finds Terrapin? <laughs> Apparently in band class, you find Terrapin. <laughs> Here's the Grateful Dead. <laughs> that band director was not 
He was not a hippie guy. Oh. He was not, probably not listening to any other Grateful Dead. He was a prog dude. Ah, uh, now that makes sense. Like the other records he was playing was like Genesis yeah, and that yeah. kind of stuff, yeah. which I was like down with. But like, but I think that yeah. that was that was his crossover exactly. Record. And so like all of these like marching band music nerds, like a little context, like the marching band that I was part of in high school was like the largest marching band in Western North Carolina. Like nice. there was like over two hundred of us at one point. So like like a lot of us were like we were on track to go to music programs for for, sure. for professional yeah. reasons. Yeah. And so like he was like, this is what these kids will get into, and he was right. Yeah. We were like into hard funk, hard prog. Mm-hmm. Like that mm-hmm. was that was the stuff that was like getting us lit up yeah yeah i was coming from the prog side of the fence too Mm -hmm. my big band was king crimson yes yes too (laughs) um this record came out in 1977 july of 77 uh disco was in bloom punk was just starting to take aim at so-called dinosaur acts like the dead Mm -hmm. and by this time they're on the other side of the hiatus They've got Mickey Hart more or less integrated into the band, which, depending on your politics, is a good thing or... Depending uh, on the night, frankly. (laughs) Well, you know, with the dead, it's always depending on the night. Yeah. Kevin and I talked before the show about how this could turn into another Donna dissing session, but I actually think she has a pretty good grasp of where the band was at at the time, including Mickey's return. Like, if you hear her talk about it at the time, she's definitely making the case for a one drummer band. But that said, to my ears and this is coming from somebody who really had a hard time getting into the dead because of Mickey Hart particularly in the late 80s and early 90s and I know I'm not alone there in fact one of our listeners wrote to us uh, describing how he thought Mickey Hart in the 90s sounded like a broken drum machine getting thrown down the stairs (laughs) (laughs) but the whole album is really tight um, and Probably because for their first record on Arista, the label head Clive Davis demanded they use a producer. He straight up said he wanted a hit Grateful Dead album. Yeah. And he'd eventually get one within the dark. Mm -hmm. But even here on Terrapin, you know, something has changed and that something is, you know, there's really great separation and clarity in the instrumental voicings and tones. And that's coming from Keith Olson. Uh, he had just come from working with Fleetwood Mac. Uh, he actually brought Lindsay and Stevie to Fleetwood Mac uh, because he produced the Buckingham Knicks album. And he seemed like a really well-liked guy who was easy to work with. Right. And unfortunately, we lost him in 2020, not to COVID. Mm-hmm. But one of the best stories from the Terrapin sessions was when Olsen got roadie Steve Parrish to literally lock the band in the studio so they couldn't get up to any mischief. Yeah. He actually hammered nails into the door and they would pull them out at the end of the night. Nail the door <laughs> shut. Yeah. Interesting you phrase it that way because like I've heard that story too and- Mm-hmm. The way I always like contextualize that was not just about like, let's keep the guys focused, but also like there is this transition that happens around the time that they go to Arista where I think that the family becomes less and less a part of like mm. the baseline functions of the band. Like there's new management, yeah. there's this new label. Like, yeah. like I think that it was not only like to keep the band focused, but also to keep the family and, you know, everybody else that was working at Sound City out, right. like to keep them like from distractions that they were known to partake in, you know? Yeah, for sure. And Jerry was definitely partaking. Yeah. Uh, he picked up a Persian heroin habit while he was working on the Grateful Dead movie, which had turned into this whole financial debacle. Uh, and a side note on that movie, it was co-directed by Leon Gast, who made one of the greatest documentaries of all time, When We Were Kings, mm-hmm. about the Ali Foreman rumble in the jungle in Zaire. Uh, I 
bring that up because Gast also just passed away. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the Grateful Dead movie was a huge money pit, and Jerry was under intense pressure to deliver something. So, yeah. uh, you know, he turned to heroin to relieve the stress. Um, but, you know, it doesn't really negatively impact Terrapin, in my opinion. No. You know, everything he plays or sings on the record is, you know, pretty lucid and on point. You don't hear much of necessarily the Grateful Dead on Terrapin. Wow. They're doing all these things, but it seems like almost this like weirdly like idiosyncratic time in the band where like nothing is as it should be. Hmm. And the result is this record. I agree with you there, but I also think that there's a flip side to that where it's like, while it is like very disjointed and kind of runs in a lot of directions at once, that is a thing that is unique to the Grateful Dead. I agree. The like classic alchemy of Working Man's Dead is not there. Like all the guys in the room just really like doing the chemistry that they do, but it represents all of these different sides. You, yeah, you know, for sure. You've got Bobby. He, Bobby's really flexing on this. And I think that, you know, in my mind, like that's, that is probably where like the Garcia drug thing is most apparent is that like there's more Bobby on this record than any of the stuff leading up to that. Yeah, Bobby was definitely growing quickly as a composer, which kind of puts some of the comments by other band members in a different light when they were complaining about the orchestral treatments on the song Terrapin Station and in other places. You know, Bobby's complaint wasn't necessarily, you know, that the orchestral stuff was there. Right. He just wanted to have some input into it because he actually had interests in that area. Totally. Uh, he's interested in modern classical composition and what they call new music. Yes, yeah, for sure. Uh, Terrapin comes after Grateful Dead Records went under, and that was Ron Rakow's baby. He was responsible for running the label. Uh, but just like Mickey's dad, Lenny Hart, Rakow made off with a ton <laughs> of the band's money. And once again, Garcia just chose to let it go. Uh, unfortunately, that left them in a lurch financially, and so they needed this new record deal. But Jerry seemed pretty happy to be back on a label, all things considered. Uh, he said, now we have somebody else to push it around and make outrageous demands of. As I've said many times, they were always chasing a hit. And what is so endearing about this album to me is that they thought these were the hits, especially Dancing in the Streets. <laughs> Come on. You know, I think the thing to remember about the Grateful Dead is they always saw themselves as a dance band, right? Yeah. You know, they'd take a bunch of acid and play for three hours. Well, yes. <laughs> but then they'd get in the studio and it's like, what do we do here? Well, here are some songs. And one of them happens to be this tune that they've been playing since the Primal Dead era by Martha and the Vandrellas. So they come by it, honestly. Right. <laughs> but you can blame this arrangement uh, on Mickey Hart. <laughs> Donna does. She says, he was so into Saturday Night Fever. Oh my God, what the band would have to put up with in the hotel room. You can probably always blame Mickey and a sizable portion of the Grateful Dead's listening audience will probably agree with you. <laughs> probably Mickey too. It's true. <laughs> like where you put blame, he takes credit. <laughs> Oh, hi, Ed. Incidentally, if anyone's heard the, the latest Dave's picks, Mickey just murders a Bertha. <laughs> Murdering a Bertha, the Mickey Hart story. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Thanks for the tip. Yeah. I think this record sounds a little bit more of its time than... Absolutely. Uh, than, than probably a lot, basically anything since maybe American Beauty, which is only, what, six or seven years before this. Hard to believe. I mean, Olsen came right off of doing Rumors to do uh, this. Actually, it wasn't Rumors. It was the first self-titled album with Lindsay and Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> same studio, though. Yeah. In the same studio. You know, like like they, they were clearly chasing the hit. 
Clive is, of course, like got his fingers in that, like really pushing them. Let's get a cut of Dancing in the Streets out there on radio, push this band into the stratosphere. But like this record sounds like the scene, but it did not sound like what was the zeitgeist. Well, I think on earlier records, the San Francisco bands were like, what is recording? <laughs> sure, 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 sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. they weren't the L.A. bands. Mm. And so there was a learning curve. But it is true. Clive Davis matched the Grateful Dead with a slick producer that was able to bring like that contemporary sort of sheen to the project. I think saying it's of its time, though, without describing like what the time was, is like missing a lot because you're saying you're thinking like everything is like Terrapin Station. You had rumors out there, which is nothing like that. Marquee Moon came out in seventy. <laughs> Asia, Steely Dan. Yeah. But then you also have like Lust for Life. Iggy Pop is sneaking up on that craft work. Mm-hmm. Drops their masterpiece right. then. You've got Pink Floyd's Animals. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Leonard Skinner coming up yeah. with Street Survivors. You know, every single record that you just mentioned, with the exception of Leonard Skinner, but including Iggy Pop, are in their way progressive rock albums. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are. And my point is that the, the late 70s, the whole thing of the 70s was sort of shattering. Yeah. This was 77. By 78, people were hating on disco. By 79, it was dead. Well, unless you're the Grateful Dead who came back to really flog that horse with Shakedown Street. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yes. But, you know, the overall point is a lot of stuff was converging at that time. You had recording technology that was hitting a new apex. You had musicians who were pushing beyond the original rhythm and blues conceits of rock and roll music. Mm -hmm. And you had audiences who had come to really expect hi-fi cinematic wonderment from this beautiful fetish object called the Long Player Album. I also think there's something to be said for like the band in that time, like coming off of hiatus, coming off of Blues for Allah, like I think that they were just trying to flex. You know, they're they're <laughs> they're they're back to working with somebody else's money. Yeah. Like they're down to just like run in every direction at once and see what works and it's like yeah, like they're bringing weird shit to the table and Kreutzmann, you know, his conversations about this record and he's like, yeah, they bring me weird shit that's in 7-4 and has no fucking <laughs> shuffle and I got to figure it out. Yeah, with Mickey no less. And he lands it. Yeah. Brings it back to center, but then you also you also have Robert Hunter like Doing his most like Tolkien like world building and yeah. you know and and Lesh who's like always been been sneaking these like modern classical references into the live shows in ways that almost never land in that scenario like that stuff yeah. that stuff's out in like full focus here so it, it really is it's like yeah it it is probably the most disjointed record but it also probably it's like the twelve sided die of the Grateful Dead world it shows every angle of it sure you know? different facets yeah it's great. And you mentioned weird time signatures, so I immediately think of Estimated Profit. How could you forget? Which is in 7-4 and is the best opener on any Grateful Dead record. And I say that even though Bob Weir sings it. (laughs) (laughs) And I know Kevin has some thoughts on this song. You know, I call it Chipper White Man Reggae, but I mean, this is a signature Dead song. And as far as vocalist goes, you are generally either a Bobby fan or a Jerry fan. You're never a Lesh fan. (laughs) Oh, come on. That's not a thing you can do. Oh, uh, (laughs) I am always standing, Phil. I do. The Box of Rain heads up here? You guys don't get the Box of Rain people on this? (laughs) Hello. You know, it sets you up for an album that you're not going to hear. Kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if the rest of the album had been like this song, it would have been huge. You'd been like, oh, okay, I see. They're getting a little funky. They're getting a little like reflective on California. It's like, oh, all right. I'll say this. It's like definitely my favorite of the Weir Barlow collaborations. Yeah. Sure. Um, which you know, it's like damning it with faint 
praise compared to, you know, Hunter Garcia, in my view. But I think lyrically, it's amazing. It paints a beautifully cynical picture of California woo, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Bobby has such great quote about basically like how estimated is a song about a guy he would see backstage at every mm-hmm. show. And it wasn't the same guy, but it was always the same guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. The type, uh, yeah. right? Like, like leading a group of people and sort of invoking heaven and hell and, 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 and promising things that would of course never materialize. I think it's a great contrast to Terrapin and it's, I was actually yeah. sort of like trying to come up with contrarian takes today <laughs> and I was trying to figure out what if, you know, c- could you, could you make the case that the album should have been called estimated profit and not Terrapin uh. station? <laughs> Probably not, but it's fun to imagine a timeline where that happened. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you in particular about Passenger. A lot of people might think that song is just filler, but is that the whole story? I've found myself like in the same way that I've had like uh, a West LA fadeaway phase. Like I think I'm headed for a passenger phase. Like it's vexing Mm. to me that they didn't play the song after 1981. It would have sounded so good. Maybe Passenger is your Cucamonga. Oh. All, all roads lead to Cucamonga. Well, it is another Phil Lesh composition. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't know if it's as bizarre as Cucamonga, but it is awkward. But it's got guitar sounds that we haven't heard from this band before. It's True. got a whole sort of more uh, earnestly rocking vibe that doesn't seem to be informed by Chuck Berry. Yeah, it's Southern rock. Well, to me, it sounds yeah. like third-rate fog hat. Which begs the question: <laughs> Is there first-rate fog hat? <laughs> Sorry to all the fog hat fans out there. But it's actually a really interesting song. Uh, the lyrics were written by Phil Lesh's friend Richard Zimmels, a.k.a. Peter Monk, who was actually a Buddhist monk. So I want to know how the passenger is actually a Buddhist theory of the mind, because that's kind of what I, that's that's what it seems like to me. Well, you know, it kind of is terrible. The only game in town. That's Samsara, baby. <laughs> and yeah. uh, the thing about the Grateful Dead is a song's meaning isn't fixed, you know absolute reality isn't fixed yeah yeah (laughs) well here's a song that i sometimes feel like skipping samson and delilah (laughs) um no i don't know it's a good song i just uh you know even the live version sometimes when i hear it i'm like ah but then you know it ends up sweeping me right i'm here for it i love it sometimes i'm into it but other times it kind of takes me a minute yeah. i'm here <laughs> you know? for it too and, that, and that's the weird song on this because the other stuff is all like heady and stuff and this is just ripped from a folk song yeah this is like the old school dead tradition of taking songs and updating them yeah. like yeah. I, I was listening to it today yeah. and i was like I, I rarely actually listen to the words of the song anymore you know some 30 years on and just because like i know what it is but i was listening and i was like man this is actually like kind of heavy yeah, it's it's Bobby and Donna smashing yeah. the patriarchy. Yeah, basically. yeah, and, and I'll say this: like, I categorize a lot, of, a lot of the like, especially like the early era dead records of like, which ones laid out the biggest launch pads for jams in the shows, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. And I don't know that Samson Delilah ever became that, but what it did become is like a really solid like brick in the middle of a set. Like it would like right. Mm-hmm. When they would bring it into a set, it really just like brought everything back to earth, you know, like, yeah, you'd have it Good and then they'd launch into something else. And like the best dead sets are the ones that have yeah. that ebb and flow. Yeah. You need that grounding element. You need something to bring you home. And right, and right. I think Samson and Delilah for a long time served that that mid set night two purpose of like, mm-hmm. all right, guys, let's bring it in. Let's all groove on something like 
Everybody mm-hmm. check in, check in, check in. Okay, now we're we're back out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. barn burner too. Yeah. And it's uh, you know, probably pretty easy for them to play well yeah. no matter what yeah. night they're having. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's staple dead. Um, most people would not think that way about the song Sunrise, but I'm gonna teach the controversy. Here it is. <laughs> is this a Grateful Dead song? Bill Kreutzmann didn't think it was a Grateful Dead song. Um, I kind of hear it like Crystal Gale being backed by the Grateful Dead, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's perfectly serviceable. I like it just fine. I think it's really cool that Donna has the sole writing credit on this song. And I hear in the lyrics, which she wrote, you know, all by herself, uh, references to Rolling Thunder, the band's personal shaman. Yeah. You know, I kind of want my own personal shaman, but then I'm like, yeah, be your own shaman, B-Y-O-S. <laughs> anyway, no matter where you land on the great Donna Jean debate, I think we can all agree that this is a pretty sweet Donna song on a Grateful Dead record. I think Donna Jean, like, demonstrates, like, on this, she's an amazing singer. Yeah, it's a little pitchy, but it ain't she bad. She sang back mm-hmm. up on, like, Suspicious Minds. She did. Come on. Then you hear that yelp in fucking any version of Eyes of the World that she's on. (laughs) (laughs) Or coming back from any playing that she's on. Yes. (laughs) But, you know, I try to separate this in my mind because, you know, like Kevin said, Mm -hmm. she's saying back up on Suspicious Minds. She's been in the studio before, obviously. Uh, I have a feeling that with the right microphone and the right monitor mix where she's not forced to scream like a banshee over the wall of sound, you know. Uh, under the right conditions, she's just fine. Yeah. But these people are blazed on like a hundred thousand different pharmaceuticals at any given moment as well. So you right. know the right. the tendency to be pitchy vocally live is always going to be there. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not shocked that like oh she can sing a song in the studio. What I like about Sunrise is that um, it's just like you know Donna's little chill out space. She creates this sort of magical little snow globe and invites you to sit down with her and be reflective for a few minutes the thing that i go back to with donna is that like she gets flack for the timbre for the way that she sings especially in a lot of the live cuts but it's like mickey hart phil lesh like pretty much everybody except for garcia and kreutzman had their own moments of just fucking biffing a show you know oh, yeah. like yeah. like yeah. there are yeah. there are eras of brett midland's playing that i cannot listen it's to. all biff so like i i yeah. just i don't know man like i give donna a pass <laughs> i give donna a pass too i just sometimes want to take it back <laughs> when i'm like listening to a dead tape with people who are not like in it there's going to be a moment where donna goes for a riff and like somebody's gonna be like what are we doing here <laughs> yeah like, it's me. like i've had that happen to me many times on like long drives where i'm like like you know we're burning through cornell 77 and like Somebody's like, oh, I just, can we switch it? I get it. (laughs) To your point, though, Rusty, I mean, mean, Vince did that most nights. (laughs) Um, There's like no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that the Grateful Dead are a richer and more interesting band for having had Donna be part of the band. Like, like to me, she she really expands the palette. And um, even though it was only what five or six years i think um all told crucial years crucial yeah years. yeah and she took chances and sometimes she missed biffed i think was the verb you used rusty and that just seems like that's that's like a subtitle for the band like who's gonna biff shit up tonight um because the answer was someone it was never no one <laughs> it's always someone but it's funny like there's a deeper truth in that too because the thing that the dead have taught me the most in my life is you kind of just have to accept the mess you know you have to accept reality on its terms and yeah you're able to sort of play with it and get messy with it but 
you know, you're not as in control as you think you are. Yeah. And yeah. as Grateful Dead fans, we have a high tolerance for biffing. Um, we also have a high tolerance for ambiguity, particularly in lyrics, because, you know, the worlds that the dead depict are very interesting and metaphorically and allegorically rich, but they're also highly subjective, very much open to different interpretations. And like the best poetry, those interpretations can yeah. differ depending on your own frame of mind. Right. And with that, I think it's time to slay the crystalline dragon that is Terrapin Station. To me, Terrapin is about, you know, the dreamlike nature of reality, coupled with like a, a sort of depiction of like bardo experiences, you know, the stations of the cross or, you know, moving through different types of phases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's done in this really sort of elegant way that nods to like all kinds of different epic uh, poetic mm -hmm. traditions, uh, uh, Western and Eastern. Yep. And, and that's the majesty of Robert Hunter right there. Anyway, I hear Ed has a good Terrapin story. It wasn't good for me, but it, it's, a, it's a story that is good. <laughs> oh. um, like probably 75% of people who have ever really gotten into the dead, I had an absolutely nightmarish trip uh, where I was stuck inside of yeah. Terrapin Station. And it was just... And like it was, Ooh. you know, I was like just at the point uh, with acid where like I felt sort of confident and I was like, I think it was the first time I'd taken multiple tabs. It was like sketchy, speedy stuff that I got from a guy from Nashville who went by the name Whip. Whip. So in hindsight, <laughs> mistakes were made and um, I didn't sleep for the next 24 hours. And whatever became of Whip. <laughs> I do not know what happened to Whip. Whip is me. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking you're safer that way. <laughs> but if sort of like lying wide awake, convincing yourself that you should be asleep and being stuck in the sort of outro jam of Terrapin Station where every thought is punctuated by the end of a bar and the little guitar, you know, that little descending thing announces the start of a new thought and you're yeah. powerless to stop it. It's just like a projector that's playing in front of you like Clockwork Orange. If that sounds like a good time... Come find me in the fall of 95, and I'll take you to meet a guy named Whip. All right, all right, all right. Oh, man. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I had certainly heard a bunch of live versions before I ever heard the studio version. It was something like the people I knew who were like my guides on the dead thing were sort of like, I don't think you're ready for the studio version yet because there's some really weird shit that happens. <laughs> you don't want this shit, man. Be there. The <laughs> yeah. And it was sort of like, and when I finally heard it, I was like, I'm not sure if I like this or not. And I would yeah. I'd like, it's a bit gaudy, but the themes are to <laughs> die for. It seems to be about negotiating with the muse and trying to prove yourself worthy of being a vessel for creation. Yeah. It's a straight up invocation. Yeah, here. yeah. And it's also an attempt to deny your uh, your own ego so that you can more accurately kind of be a vessel for whatever is going to come through, right? So you're not making choices. Yeah. There's this like epic fable that Hunter's telling about sucking the marrow out of life and really like engaging with, with all of your senses and, and existence like while you have time on this planet, while also like... One of the hottest bands of the last decade is flying as close to the sun as they ever have. Like they're rolling a boulder and it's like, will they fucking make it? You know, it's like there's like this yeah. there's this handoff between yeah. those two things of like ego death, like breathe in the world while you're here while also like 
these guys are just fucking achieving at a level that they never have musically. Yeah, they're manifesting it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They're really making it happen. The idea that Hunter is putting into this, the idea of making oneself ready as a vessel, yeah. purifying yourself for the Herculean task, this superhuman, almost supernatural task of mounting Terrapin. And they do it. Yeah. And we did it too. Thanks for sticking around during our hiatus. You can find us online, deadtomepod.com, socials at deadtomepod. Until next time. Yeah.